Hello, my name is Sam and I run the animation club here at Tape Music and Film. Due to these crazy times, I've moved the animation club online. I have used this opportunity to get some live Q&As with animation professionals. I have decided to turn the past Q&As into podcasts. In this episode, we speak to the legendary animator, writer and director, Barry Purvis. Thank you to everybody who's here at the moment. Um, we, we've got a sunny day in Manchester, so it's sunny where you are today. Um, yeah. You're coping with lockdown. People seem to have um, used this time to be quite creative. Uh, I should have been clearing out cupboards and everything, but I've written a short film, which hopefully will go in production soon. But I should have been clearing out cupboards. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in my room. As Sam said, I've been doing this business for 40 odd years. Um, I've got a lot of storyboards, a lot of stuff piled away that I really must uh, sort out. Yeah, so 40 odd years, and you know what? I've loved every minute of it. Um, I think I've been lucky enough to work more days than I haven't worked. Um, mm. I've been lucky enough to work on children's films, feature films, uh, long-running series, mind films, and a fair bit of teaching. Uh, I've written three books. Um, but so I'm a grand age of 65, sorry, I have to think about that, 65 at the moment, and I'm, I'm not finishing. I'm certainly, uh, I would love to do one short film, and... I'd love to do a feature film, direct a feature film, because I feel that's what's missing from my CV at the moment. Um, yeah, I'd love to do something. I got involved with one a few years ago. I wrote, I was asked to write a feature film, and it all went a bit odd, and I never got paid for it. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a feature film waiting, ready to go. Um, I think what, what I want to do with a feature film is just spend a bit longer with the characters. Um, most of my short films are 11 minutes or 14 minutes or something, and invariably the characters die at the end or or something tragic happens to them. I'd like to spend a bit more fleshing out the characters and having them in, in different situations. Um, I love doing TV series um, for that very reason. Um, TV series, you can't really develop the characters, but you can different situate over the weeks. I, I think the longest TV series I worked on was Twirly Woos. That was about three, four years ago. We did a hundred episodes. That's a lot of television by any <laughs> any stretch, and I, I loved it. I really loved Twirly Woos. It was a technical challenge. Mm putting stop motion into live action. Um, but it was the companies involved were so well organized and everybody had done so much homework. It, it, it worked. Um, but I think one of the hardest shots we did was um, two, two twirly wheels were sitting on a live action saddle of a horse that was jumping over fences. And we had to try and match the action of the batting saddle 
with the twelves. That was um, that wasn't easy. <laughs> you know, that, we love these challenges. Uh, we love problem solving, and um, actually, usually the answer is the most simple. Mm. I did a play last year um, called The Brontes, and I did an effect in it that drew a gasp from the audience every night, and it was so easy. It was such a simple device. It was um, Emily Bronte. Um, had, had died and she had written apparently a second novel and Charlotte mm. found it after her death and burnt it. So it's a quite an emotional thing. And I thought, how do I visualize the, the emotional impact of this? And she, she literally ripped up random pieces of paper and we put a fan on the floor and a red spotlight. And suddenly these papers, rather than fluttering down, shot up to the sky to the flies above in this dazzling red and it, it drew a gasp every night and it even got a review in the local paper <laughs> the astonishing effect of the destruction of the second second manuscript it, it was so easy and i i know technical people love to invent things they love technical toys and new ways of doing it but just see if you can Search every simple solution first. Talking of simple things, let's give an example. Um, the first TV series I worked on was Chilton and the Wheelies mm. for Cosgrove Hall. So this would have been about 1978, long before anyone born. Um, and the, they wanted to produce a series that was very quick, very energetic, and had a high impact. And um, they had a lot of characters. And rather than walking them around, they put them on wheels. And they became the wheelies. You didn't have to worry about magnetizing them to the floor or screwing them to the floor. They had three wheels. Um, and you could literally just shove them along and get a lot of, lot of instant animation. And in the same series, there was Fenella, uh, the Wicked Witch. She was a Welsh Wicked Witch, so I apologize to the Welsh. Um, <laughs> and they wanted her to have a particular way of moving. And again, we sort of, well, the um, Cosgrove Hall avoided having to walk her from one place to the other. And she literally just popped down to the ground and popped up somewhere else. And it was a series of about four replacements that she she disappeared and then mm. reappeared. And it became so effective. And it was a way of thinking, how can we we can't haven't got time to make this character walk, time and money and schedule and all that. So what do we do? And she disappears and popped up and it was so effective. And and she had her own sort of music attached to her disappearing. And, um, but, you know, think of, think outside the box. What often worries me with young animators is they get too literal. Animation is so artificial. Let's enjoy that artifice in the design of the puppets, in the staging, in the music, in the sound. 
um, you know, so often I go to places and they've built a character and they're building the sets of a lovely living room. So, so much detail. But once they start shooting, they haven't secured the living room and it's wobbling all over the place. And, and you know, I, I would sort of ask, what's important in that scene? It's the character. You don't need all, all that, all those trappings. You, you know, I think I'm used to working with budgets that are very small. Um, and I try only to make things that are important to the story. Or, and um, I try and make everything contribute to the film. If it doesn't contribute, then it's not there. It's not there. I, I see what you mean as well, like with uh, Next and Plume, where there's minimal to no set almost in, in Plume, and you're concentrating on the characters themselves. Uh, I think as well in Tchaikovsky, uh, using the projection idea as well was fantastic. So let's talk about those two films. Let's talk about Plume first. Mm -hmm. um, I was given a budget, it was a, a good budget, and I shot it in France. Um, but I wanted the challenge I set myself was could I tell a dramatic story? with no set, no costume, no culture, cultural mm. references, no... Could I, could I basically tell a story with essentially one puppet in a pool of light? And I think I, I like that challenge. Maybe, maybe I'm having a reaction to CG that is... I mean, CG is wonderful and extraordinary, but it's so much. You look at some film today and it's so overproduced you don't know where to look sometimes and things um uh i thought plume i wonder if i could make an elegant dramatic film with one puppet i did the worst and a few other puppets lurking in the shadows but, um and the producers and i we did have this discussion about should there be a geography should there be a broken temple for example a ruined temple or should he be wearing a costume and i thought no he he's got to have nothing because he's he's a sort of metaphor um, and as soon as you put a costume on you have to decide what costume because any piece of costume says something about the character and i wanted this character to be neutral uh, so people could put their own understanding on it. Um, and I, I I made a decision, either we go the full works and we have temples and rivers and clouds and or we have nothing. And I quite like that we have nothing. And it works. It works. Um, I had to be careful with camera moves because there was a character against black and if, for example, if he was kneeling and we had a, a zoom or a camera move, it would have looked as though he was sliding on the floor because there was nothing to reference. He's just in a black void. Um, so I had to be very careful in the storytelling that the audience knew exactly where they were. We did that mm. with lighting. There was a very definite side lighting. 
And if there was a top top, um, I put some scattered feathers on the floor so there was something solid. And there, there is a journey in the film of Plume. Um, and the, the winged character is always on the right of frame. And the shadowy characters are always on the left of frame. And that way the audience knew to the geography when there was no geography. <laughs> I, I was living in a, a room covered in black velvet and um, so the, the lighting is quite dim and much of the lighting is caused by the wings illuminating of the character. And that, this, was, this was 10 years ago, so I was 55 then. My eyes are okay, but in a dark room, for, you know, eight hours a day, focusing on the eyes, sort of two feet in front of you. Um, I, I couldn't do it, so I had to wear a blind helmet that I would switch on, and I could see the character clearly. Having to switch it off again became, you know, became something. Um, the wings, I, I don't know if anybody has seen the film, but the wings, about a character with wings who has the wings ripped from him. The wings are illuminated. And um, we assumed, and we had some wings from a dove, uh, first of all, and they were too small. Then we had some wings from a duck, and they were fantastic. And we assumed, very wrongly as it happened, that if you put ultraviolet on white feathers, they will, glisten, you know, they will shine. Mm. It didn't. <laughs> the ultraviolet made no no effect at all. So we were in France in a tiny village, and there was one supermarket. Um, so we went to find some detergent or um, something that could clean white fabrics uh or we found some net cleaners and the wings were so detailed um i didn't want to touch them um they were real wings so i brushed every feather with this cleaning stuff uh, with a toothbrush not trying not to mess the the natural order of the feathers and anyway we stood back and put the ultraviolet on Bang! God oh, wow. knows what was in the fabric cleaner. <laughs> but it, um, much of the lighting in the film is caused by the reflection of the wings. Um, so I don't know what chemical was in the wings at all in the in the cleaning stuff. But um, yeah, it was a challenge that film. I wanted it to to make it a cross between a a ballet and a rugby scrum. Mm -hmm. um, and there were no words it's all told to music again which is a challenge and I often when I teach I often talk about structure and preparation and uh, and I look at my some of my films and the structure is there is structure but it's a bit woolly or a bit fluid mm -hmm. uh, Plume has a textbook structure absolute textbook structure three acts in 13, 14 minutes. Um, and the first act, you know, even if you have a one minute story, try and think of the three acts. Um, 
the first act in Plume is the man who wants to fly. Simple as that. That he flies, that's what defines him. End of story. His wings break. He can't fly. That's the end of Act One. So we've got a problem. Act two, he crashes to the ground, tries to fly again, tries to fly again, but there are problems. And there are these shadowy characters creating obstacles. They want the feathers. They used to fly, and they're trying to steal the feathers. So there's all this conflict and drama, and um, he can't fly. But that's what he does. He flies. Um, act three, he resolves it. Um, the shadowy figure got rid of, um, and he finds a way to move forward. In in that he he is flying, but he's not. He's he's learnt to swim, which is essentially flying but different. And some of the movements are the same that he used when he was flying. So three acts there he's he's set up his world complicated it and resolved it and i'm quite glad i did that because for, for once one of my films has a good structure that i can i can demonstrate mm -hmm. um i usually have a, th a thing i like to do and again i would recommend to everyone is think about the world you're creating and limit it to storytelling. Uh, the my film of Achilles, it would have been very easy to go all Jason and the Argonauts and again have ruined temples and boats and everything. Budget didn't allow that, so I thought I've got a Greek chorus. All I'm going to use to tell this story are masks and shields. That's it. Mm. That's that's absolutely it. And when you watch the film, it doesn't look as though there's been it. Um, in Tchaikovsky, I've got more or less empty stage with, as you say, projections. The problem with Tchaikovsky is to, well, I, only have, I only had 13 minutes. But how do you tell his story without mentioning all the other characters? And a lot of mistake people make when they're writing the script is they write, 20 characters in in a short film the producer will hate you if you build a puppet that has one line to say you spent all that money and he ended up one line can you give that line to somebody else or can you find another way of telling that piece of information and i thought how do i represent sort of a dozen or so people in tchaikovsky's life when I've only got time to give them 10 seconds or so. Yes. So we found I found some early photographs of Tchaikovsky, and I thought, ah, he was around at the beginning of photography. How about we project images, we project letters, we project things. That saves having to build a physical puppet. But it also works because it becomes a mind. It becomes in his mind and his imagination. And it really worked for the film. I, I do believe um, you have to be economical. My first mm -hmm. script for Tchaikovsky, <laughs> I've got it somewhere, is um, 
I was going to do it all in one take. And I had this idea of him sat at a piano and the set sliding past. I mean, it slipped past. It was another visual representation of life. And, and as he was telling his life story, he was ripping off all his clothes. And I had this idea, a very Ken Russell idea, that he was going to lie naked on his piano and a sheet would come down and he would be lying in state at the end of the film. <laughs> that would have been so hard. I don't know what the puppet would have been like <laughs> when I finally got his clothes off after three months of filming. The puppet would have been all squashed and dirty. <laughs> and there are shoes. Shoes are always an issue. I don't have a naked body with shoes. And taking shoes off a puppet is very difficult. Um, so I thought, well, I like the piano idea because that's what defined him. Um, can I afford to build a pup uh, piano? No, I can't afford to build a piano. Um, so I'll have a music score and he's conducting. Ah, that if I don't have a piano, he can get up, he can move around. He doesn't have to sit down the whole time. He can dance, he can conduct, he can move. Heck, the piano's gone. And you know, we saved a lot of money, and it worked for the film. It became much more fluid. His imagination; he could go from one scene to the other. By if I'd have a piano, I would have to sit down, stand up, move away from the piano, sit down, and um, in the end, he he ended up playing air piano. People remark that the piano playing looks very accurate. Um, mm -hmm. He was playing. He was playing the real notes if they were yeah. there. Um, well, I can't really play the piano, but I can read music, mm. and we had the score from the music. Um, and whenever there was a piano scene on film, I drew where the keyboard should be, and I drew where middle C was, so I could work out where the hands should be. And a trick that um, happy to pass on, um, when he pressed a key that wasn't there, I made the finger bend and take the hand past the finger. So it looked as though the finger was, was um, touching the key. There was some resistance, but there was no key there at all. Um, the piano is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> Uh, back in Wind of the Willows days, uh, Ratty had to play the piano. And there was a song in an episode called The Great Steamer. And I think they were, the script was a bit underwritten. So Ratty sang the song called We'll Go Boating, 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 We'll Go Boating Once Again. And we had about four minutes of the song that took the episode up to 20 minutes. Um, now, there's a lesson, I'm going to, a good lesson here. Our designer had made this beautiful reproduction of a Victorian piano, but it wasn't friendly for rat. <laughs> it should have been slightly modified to, to cope with rat, who had a very big muzzle. So when he played the piano, he had to turn his head to one side so he wasn't nose to nose to the piano. 
um, in perhaps keyboard should have been widened a bit to accompany this. He also had a very big stomach and short arms, and he only had three fingers. <laughs> and I was determined to play the piano accurately, um, which is quite hard when he's only got, doesn't have enough fingers. So I think the lesson there is work with your designer. Um, try and so what is needed out of the prop. Yes, Ratty has to play the piano. It doesn't just have to look good, but it has he has to look at his anatomy and thinking, is that Ratty friendly? Can he can he stretch to all the lengths of the keyboard? Yeah. So I think a designer has to find a balance of a credible piano and something that belongs in the world of those animals. Um, mm -hmm. And I think on window pillows, we did have tiny little magnets in the keys that let the keys stay down, which was a nice touch. But, but um, yeah, the Tchaikovsky piano playing, my day on the Tchaikovsky film was we'd start filming about nine o'clock, finish about six. I'd go for a swim, and then I'd come home and learn the music for the next day. <laughs> and it, Again, okay, I'm, I'm giving out all these lessons. Sorry if I'm sounding like a teacher. Um, I think a great secret in, <laughs> a great secret in animation is not just to think of the frame you're animating, but to think where the puppet will be in 12 frames or a second. Um, and particularly when playing the piano, I had music and I could see that on frame 12, I was pressing C, for example, but on frame 36, I was pressing G in another key. I've got to allow enough frames to get to that G in time. Yeah. So you've got to think ahead. When do I start to move? When do I and then move, move it? So you always have to think, like a dancer on stage, when they do a jump, they're thinking where they're going to land, you know, a second later. Have they got enough space within the frame of the stage? Think, think ahead. Think what the next move is. The next move is always is actually the most important move rather than the one you're doing. Um, and that, that can be frustrating when you're working with agencies and advertising or producers who perhaps aren't quite savvy to the animation technique. Um, you know, sometimes you can do a move, and it can be a big move, and you have a producer sat behind you going, oh, did you mean to do such a big move? Because the last one was smaller. And you go, yes, because the next move will be smaller, and so the move is slower down. Like music, like singing, like writing a word, it doesn't make sense until you put the next word next to it. And an animation, if you do a big move, you can get away with huge moves if perhaps the next one is smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, you know, but and when you construct a sentence, Jane Austen, for example, she wrote enormously long sentences and she teased the audience by only giving you the sense of the sentence in the last word. So you have to stay with her as she does all this complicated grammar 
Ah, then, then she lets you have what the, where it was all going. So always think, think ahead. Andrew Congers has asked, uh, is Plume the first film that you intertwined with CGI? Yeah, CG, I guess, came in about 1995. Um, and we've used it in Rigoletto. There's a tiny bit of post-production. Um, there's some mist floating in some of the sets and um, making it look very dank and, and wet and messy. And the guy in the post-production, he actually took some smoke against black and stretched it out in CG and really stretched it out. So it had a, a weight and a level to it. Mm. And I thought that was brilliant, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. And actually in a commercial, uh, I did for um, Woolworth's clothes. Um, the idea was there were some children and they were interacting with cl uh, children made out of clothes. And it was an autumn season of clothes. And um, we had thousands of leaves on the floor. And I was shooting from above. And I thought it would be nice to finish with fireworks. And we've got a million buttons. Um, I was animating these buttons to be like exploding fireworks. My knees were killing me. Then we took it into post-production and the editor said, if I press this button, we can have a 50% image on the previous frame. Mm. Went, wow. <laughs> and suddenly the fireworks looked as though they were fading. And, and so I started to think, oh, that's better. Um, and it, you know, we got double the amount of fireworks and buttons and things. So it was just, I, I like, um, I don't, probably never do CG film. I think I'll, I'll use CG to uh, complement things. Mm. And obviously rig removal. And in um, Too Early Rules, there was a lot of CG. But Plume, well, okay, here's a story about Plume. Um, I had to sit in front of a panel of five French people and I had to explain the last act to, um, to them because it was a stop motion film and the budget was for stop motion technique. And they said, why are you going to shoot the water scene in CG? And I thought, this is the first time in my career I've had to <laughs> defend uh, you know, not using stop motion, um, you because know, I was I always want to use stop motion, and people are usually saying, "Why don't you use CG?" In this example, it went the other way, and my answer was, "He has to have travelled somewhere that was same but different." Mm. Um, so the world they learned to swim sort of looked the same, but it was different. So that was the reason, and also because he was in water, and we wanted hair to be rippling, and um, um, so it was a aesthetic choice. Well, actually, actually, here we go. This is this is what this meeting's about. Um, <laughs> Plume, Plume was written, I guess, as a result of a trauma. Um, 
my mother died and I thought, how do you carry on? And, you know, my answer, as I've just said, is you find the same but different. You're, you are different after an event, but you have to find joy in that difference. But also, I just worked on Mars Attacks when I wrote this film. And Mars Attacks went from stop motion to being CG. And I thought, I'm going to have to adapt. I'm going to have to find the joy in CG. Um, as it happened, Plume happened 16 years later. And it, it was sort of an acknowledgement of um, slightly delayed acknowledgement that, uh, yeah, I'm open for CG. <laughs> um, you know, they can, the techniques, it's, it's what is right for the film. Yeah. Um, stop motion was right for the first half of the film, and it was. SPG was right for the second half of the film. Um, but, you know, I think you have to really question which technique you use. Stop motion is great for texture and physicality and performance and touching it. Um, but there are some things, you know, I would never attempt to make a stop motion film about 20 jellyfish. It would be crazy. Because you'd never be able to get the squishiness of the jellyfish or anything, so you have to. Uh, and you know the Mars attacks thing. Um, I think they lost something by not going stop motion, but I think they gained an awful lot. They gained in numbers. They gained the fabric. They gained in the wet skin, wet eyes. Um, you know, because in some scenes there are hundreds of mushrooms running around. That would have been hard for us. Um, but I think perhaps, perhaps they lost a bit of the 1950s feel, 60s feel that is inherent in the cards. I don't know. We'll never know. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It was made and it's a good movie. When you make a CG film, you can make it with people all around the world. When you work with a stop motion crew, they have to all be in the same room together. Mm. Um, so there's something nice about the camaraderie of working on a stop-motion film. But um, here's, a, here's an idea that's quite deep. When you're working with stop-motion now, you know it's a part. And that is part of the technique. And if you look at the end of um, Box Trolls, is it Box Trolls or... Um, one of the Leica films where the two characters are saying, what if we were in an animated film? And you see that they're being animated by these hands. Yeah. And people love, they love the trick of stop motion. The audience know it's a trick. They know it's a trick. When you look at drawings, they, you know it's a drawing. And yet you go along with the trick. And you know Wallace and Gromit are plasticine. And yet... For those that 90 minutes, you believe them. You absolutely believe them. You are part of the trick. And part of you is saying, this is lump of, just a lump of plasticine, but they're making me laugh. They're, they're getting away. They're crossing the limit of the technique. Animation is good when it flirts with the limits of the technique. Um, if you... Had a ballet dancer 
and you watch her jump high and you go, oh my God, how does she do that? But if you saw her jump high and she was lifted up on cables, mm. I'd go, oh, that's not the same. You know, yeah. you want you want to be aware of a technique and push that technique. You want a singer to go as high as they can. But part of you is going, oh my God, she's got the same voice, you know, same mechanics as me, and yet where's that voice coming from? If you suddenly auto-tune it and it, it goes up 30 decades, you know, you know more um, octaves, you go, oh, that's not so special. And I think you have to, to do magic, you have to have limits. And what I worry about with CG is they've taken those limits away. And it doesn't become special anymore. Um, that's that's nobody's fault. There's, it's not the fault of the artists or the technicians. It's just, it's so easy to make somebody fly now. Yeah. Um, but in the days when Christopher Reeve, in the very first Superman movie, you know it wasn't a tr it, it wasn't um, CG when he's standing in his ice cave, and he leans forward, and he flies right past the camera. You think mm. that that happened, <laughs> and it's a trick, but that is him. That is actually him flying. Um, now you know you look at all the superhero movies, and you think, no, that's a CG doll doing some of those stunts. I, th I think, you know, Tom Cruise, he does all his own stunts, and they obviously have to be filled in a way to let you know that is actually Tom Cruise hanging out of an airplane, <laughs> um, even though he has a harness on. That's him banging on the side of the airplane. So you have to tell the audience what the limits are and oh my god we're flirting with crossing these limits um but once you cross once you cross the limits of the technology i sort of switch off really mm. um and we were talking about projections and i sort of have a love-hate relationship with um projections um we go to, if you see all these TV shows with these big LED screens or theatre things with LED screens and, for example, a, a panto with a big LED screen and it goes from Cinderella's kitchen and it just dissolves to the ballroom. I go, no, I want to see a physical transformation. That mm. is what's exciting. I know I'm sat in theatre space. Play with those limits. Okay, a real example of what I'm talking about, and I think this is important because it's the very nature of animation, is pulling a rabbit out of a hat on, on stage. A magician, how that trick works is a magician has to show you the hat is empty. And then without walking off stage or without putting it behind his back, he pulls a rabbit out of the hat. He does it in one take, as it were. Too often, if that was done on film, they would show you the empty hat, then they would cut to a member of the audience going, ooh, and then cut back, and he's pulling a rabbit out of the hat. And me, I would say, that's cheating. 
<laughs> you've just in the edit you put a rabbit in the hat i want to see that rabbit coming out of what i thought was an empty hat and do you remember the film the prestige mm. which was about victorian illusionists and they did a very famous trick but they did it with cg and i'm going no if, if the victorians could do it with mechanical sleight of hand yeah. you know without cutting away yeah we, we should be able to do it and i think we all love practical effects because i know there is cheating but it's less cheat than cg yeah. um, you know, I, 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 I love stage effects and I, i'm just going to tell you a very quick story about the most amazing stage effect i've seen in my life we have a theater in manchester called the royal exchange and it's in the round um, and there are seven entrances which are just normal sized doors and then they've got the big flat playing arena underneath are shops so they can't have trap doors and overhead they can fly things but about 25 years ago they did moby dick and in the run up to um the show all the papers were saying so are you can have a whale <laughs> you can't have a whale at that theater and they said come and see and i went to see it and i looked at the floor and thought well there are no trap doors there's just a bit of canvas painted like ship's floorboards and you can't fly in a whale that would be silly you can't bring a whale through the door because it would have to be in pieces how the hell are they going to do a whale on film of course you'd have a sea whale but this was theater where you're looking at an empty space bare boards basically and act one finished with them saying there she blows and you heard this rumbling and thought oh my god where it's coming and i was beyond excited and then act two started with an empty stage just some dry ice and these sailors started rowing miming row there was no boat or anything and suddenly the sound got nearer and this whale appeared and my jaw hit the floor i was so angry that i'd never thought of that and all they'd done was inflate this piece of floor cloth and you just got a suggestion of a hump of a whale and it took the sailors up on its back and i thought that that's is why i do what i do that utter utter genius it wasn't literal it but you thought you saw you got the sense of the scale of the whale there was no eyes or anything but it was all in the imagination of the sound the music the lighting the choreography it's the same with warhorse i always talk about warhorse somehow the warhorse puppets are more convincing than any of the puppets that uh, any of the cg in uh, steven spielberg's film mm. and you can see the operators but you believe those puppets it, it's about i think what it is um it's about asking the audience to supply part of the story mm. so that it becomes a shared experience 
those puppeteers when they come on with the puppet for horse are saying well they've told the audience we're going to be using puppets we've seen birds on sticks and things so you know the language and you get familiar with the visual language and when the horse comes on it's so right it's so right um, and the operators are designed in a color that matches the horse the operator looking at uh, operating the head never takes his eyes off the horse's eyes ever and something happens that is when illusion happens in a film you've got cg horses and you go yeah yeah it's mm. not special <laughs> it's, it's convincing but it's not special the thing about all these techniques and it applies to animation is you must tell the audience the language you're using um, for example in Achilles the first image is a shaft of light on a piece of armor on the floor and my Greek chorus come out of the shadows so you think ah oh, we're being very theatrical we're using light to tell the story and sure enough all the way through light is telling story you need to rather like an overture in a musical you need to bring the audience into the world and you need to be very clear on the visual language that you're going to use um, you know like plume the character with wings is always on the right i can't break that convention because otherwise the geography will get confused so find out the conventions to tell your story and stick with them um you know try and have a color palette for each scene or if one character has a you know we're, we're dealing with artifice so it's okay to have color schemes in certain scenes you know wagner 120 years ago he had a you know a light motive for every character so that if Siegfried was thinking of Brunhilde, somewhere in the orchestration, you would hear Brunhilde's tune. You know, don't be frightened of that. Don't be frightened of using all the elements in filmmaking and animation to tell the story. You know, the, the amazing uh, Schindler's List, the use of the red coat, in um you know in the horror and concentration camp and it's all grainy black and white and then there's this soft red that's not realistic that doesn't happen in real life but oh my god was it powerful you know the your job as a director is to tell the audience where to look mm. and you use that you do that by using light and color composition music choreography you have to, you know, it's all fine and well us making films for ourselves, um, but we have to make a film for an audience. And you can be obscure, but it has to be there. All the information has to be there. And and I think, particularly when we're making short films, we can't waste any time. Um, we've got to set up the conventions we've got to set up the characters straight away 
So, and I'm probably my phones, I'm guilty of being very dense. Everything is saying something. Everything is there for a reason, just because I've only got 30 minutes to tell a film. And, you know, people criticize me saying, oh, you have to concentrate in your films. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it's only 13 minutes. I expect you to watch every frame because every frame is telling the story. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I don't, you know, I won't make it um, deliberately obscure or indulgent. But the information is there if you concentrate. It probably is no surprise that my favorite director is Hitchcock. And he's quite artificial. And he doesn't worry about rear projection not being convincing. <clears throat> but why I like him is every camera angle has been considered. Every mm. piece of jewelry has been considered. Every shadow across the character's face is there for a reason. And he thinks about this in story. He does all his work in the storyboard with the artists. And he's often said the filming is, is the least interesting bit. That must be tough for the actors because they have to be do what he wants. But he has considered. The Birds is probably my favorite film. And it's a masterpiece of composition and um, the way Tippi Hedren as Melanie Griffiths, uh, Melanie Daniels, sorry. Um, she's always seems to be in a cage. She's behind a post office grill or she's in a phone box or she's seen through a window. And mm. Hitchcock is saying she's this bird in a cage. And then when she gets loose, Oh, what damage she causes! <laughs> but it, it's these little—it's these little conceits, these little conventions that I think you have to think about. And you have to make every frame count because it costs a lot of money. And to make every frame count—and I'm sorry, I'm sounding like a boring teacher now—you have to do your homework. Stop motion, particularly, is expensive. And um, you don't want to get onto a studio floor and go, um, what are we going to do today? Now, how are we going to do this? Sorry, you have to know what you're going to do. You have to walk out in front of the crew and have the answers. That's your job as a director is you have to have the answers. You're the only one that has the whole picture of the film in your head. Um, the costume lady wants to know why that costume is red you can tell her. She doesn't need to know about the whole film. She just needs to know why that costume is red. So you have to have the answers, particularly as things are often shot out of sequence. Yeah. Or you will shoot a run of close-ups together, or you will shoot a run of wide shots together. You have to have the whole picture in your head. And you can only do that by doing your homework. Doing that storyboard, looking at it day in, day out. You know, it's very easy now, and I get sent maybe half a dozen short films every day from students who've got an app on their phone and they're moving Lego around. And I go, that's absolutely brilliant, and I'm so thrilled you're enjoying stop motion. But if you did a bit of planning, <laughs> I, I always see a short film, I can always 
just tell they get bored after an hour <laughs> and rush the last action. You know, they, they start with lots of characters and then they just throw it together at the end. And I thought, if you just spent an hour doing a bit of planning, doing a bit of a few drawings or something, you'll get a better film. And I think in the end, that's what we all want is a, a good film. Um, you can have spontaneity in the film. Um, my film screenplay, which was worked out to the frame because it was all done in one take. Um, I say it was worked out to the frame, but what was worked out it had this very complicated choreography of screens and things. But I knew, for example, that the wedding scene was 35 seconds long. But when I came to the action of that wedding, I did it you know, spontaneously. But I knew I had to do a certain amount of plot in 35 seconds. And then the set had to move. <laughs> so it was all planned, but allowing for a bit of spontaneity. And of course, when you're working with puppets, you can't tell a puppet what to do. And that's the biggest mistake people think. A puppet, you're, give it, you're giving it a life. You've got mm. to respect that life. And what I mean by that is, if you're too loose, you can be too indulgent with gestures um, and find you haven't got time to do the gestures that you thought you had. So... I normally do sort of pin figures of, of shapes and things I need to get to by frame 64. He needs to be in that position or whatever. Um, so you do need to you need to think ahead again, talking like a, a ballet dancer has to think, has she got enough space to jump? Um, has, a, has the piano player left enough time to get that hand you know, down to the end of the keyboard? Um, you can be spontaneous and you have to let a puppet live um, but you need to do the planning which seems a contradiction but um, it's I think I think what I was trying to say about the uh, spontaneity is if you're working with shadows and things um, you could animate a puppet and it might not quite get into the light as you'd intended. So maybe you take six more frames to get into the light, which means you've lost six frames from the next, next action. So you have to make the most of where you are. So you have, I think this is the joy of stop motion is you are reacting to your environment and you, you can't plan everything totally because you don't know how many exactly how many frames it's going to take to walk across the set or to hit a shadow or or interesting story in wind in the willows we had two animators a scene um we were allocated characters i was toad and ratty and um there was another animator doing mole and badger and for example if there was a scene where toad had to run into shot and shake hands with mole you have to talk to each other <laughs> to say that Mole's hand will be extended at frame 124 so that I can plan Toad to get his hand to meet at frame 124. But if you don't talk to the other animator, 
you're left with her sticking his hand out and Mole hasn't done it. <laughs> so you left, oh, you have to improvise. Uh, so you have to plan, you have to plan with parameters allowing, mm. allowing things to happen. You know, all sorts of things happen on the sets. Lights could blow and finish that shot. Um, so you maybe have to insert a close-up to cover that or or you get tired into the day, or the puppet gets tired, and believe me, puppets do get tired. Yeah. Um, where it's hot in the set, the puppets try to lose their, their um, tension. Yeah. All sorts of things can happen that get in the way. Um, and, you know, I, when you're working on high profile things, sometimes the lighting takes all day, and the, yeah. the lighting camera will come to you at five o'clock and say, right, you're ready. Sorry, it's the end of the day and I'm knackered and I've got to do a 12 second shot in an hour. You know, um, so you have to plan the daily shoot. Um, you have to plan your area that you can access the puppet and that you can stand on concrete, you know, put a bit of carpet down on the floor so you know, you're not going to hurt your feet or it, it's a physical job. It's not coal mm. mining, but it's a physical job. When you're bending, I'd recommend swimming every night. That certainly helps me. Um, and I'm, hopefully I've got a short film to start shooting at the end of the year. Um, I might have to get stronger glasses because <laughs> you know, the eyes get, get weak. And certainly, you know, five o'clock at the end of the day, when you've been looking at a monitor all day, your eyes are hopeless. Um, but basically, you can't do enough homework. And I, I do encourage people to use phone apps like I can animate. But please, just do a bit of planning. Um, you know, and and. Try not to copy famous animators. Try and find your own voice. Um, try and make a story that speaks for you. And this is the whole thing. You you can make stories about your life that perhaps you're comfortable vocalizing in conversation. But you can make a, a film that's a metaphor about your situation, about your sexuality, your history, your geography, your race, your ability, disability. You know, you can, animation is a metaphor. Um, and you can say really honest things and nobody will judge you in animation because you, you know, it's the spitting image puppets got away with murder, <laughs> with saying some terrible things and yet who can who can be upset with the puppet? <laughs> Love of latex. Oscar Wilde. Man is seldom himself when he speaks with his own voice. Give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Now this mask we can see in our everyday life can be alcohol. <laughs> it can be Facebook, where people are very uninhibited. It can be anything that it just piece of outrageous clothing and you you can be uninhibited we're not very good at talking about ourselves and probably it's not all that interesting 
but find that little bit of distance, and that distance could be a theatre, a film, animation, pottery, and you can be uninhibited. Basically, what animation is, is it's an externalization of our internal thoughts and fears and dreams and everything. Um, but you've got to, because you're telling a story, you have an audience, you've got to be receptive to the audience mm. and give them help. <laughs> tease them, that's all right to tease them um, and make, make them wait. <laughs> but they've got to be there with you. You know, like I was talking about Jen Austin, um, she teases the audience and you think, where is she going? And then she tells you. She, you know, and a good joke, you wouldn't tell the punchline of a joke the first word. No. You have to tease the audience and let them think, okay, I'll tell you how to tell a good gag. Buster Keaton, two words, Buster Keaton. He, the best gag I've ever seen in the world, is in a film called One Week, where he and his girlfriend have bought a house. And the girlfriend's previous boyfriend is the baddie, and he's sabotaged the plans of this house, and they've made it, and it's all wonky and uninhabitable, but they, they love it. And they bought a plot of land, and um, I think it was, um, they've given this plot of land. When they get there, if you turn the number upside down, it's a different plot. It's the worst plot of land ever. They had to move it over a railway line. And they're moving this house, they stick barrels under it. And it's, the whole life is in this house. And they get stuck on the railway line. And there's a train coming. And it intercut with the train getting close and there's a whistle blowing and they're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. The audience says, Oh my god, get the get the house off the line. And then they finally give up and just stand back, shut their eyes, wait for the sound that doesn't happen in a silent movie. And the train's on a different line and it goes right past us. And they breathe a huge sigh of relief. The audience go, oh, thank goodness. And then a train comes the other way and pushes into the house. Um, and it's, I thought in, in that 30 seconds, the audience had been all over the place. There's tension, suspense, drama. And they're going to get hurt. Their house is going to get destroyed. Phew, they're safe. Bang. <laughs> and I think that's what you, that's what you, how you work with an audience. You tell an audience what to expect and then pull the rug from underneath them. Buster Keaton's famous, most famous stunt is when the house falls on top of him. Mm. He's, he's in a hurricane, hurricane um, and he stops for a moment and there's this huge house behind him and it's wobbling. And we the, we, the audience, can see the house falling towards him. He can't see it, which is amazing because the audience is going, oh, my God. 
and this house is wobbling and it falls down and it falls down. He's going to get squashed. And there's this tiny window that he's standing and he falls, he goes through the, passes through the window. Now that house weighed tons. Mm. There were aeroplane engines blowing it. So it could have distorted. He could have killed himself. And it's all done in one take. If there'd been editing, it would have ruined the effect. Yeah. And the fact that we see him walk in to the shot and stand in the place and stop. So he could have got that wrong. You know, but again, if you'd cut away or you'd got a CG house, no, you have to tell the audience, this is the limit. This is the parameters of the stage. But mm. God, I'm going to flirt these parameters. Mm. Um, you have to have a threat. And this darn house falling on top of him, it's a brilliant gag. Mm. Um, and it works every time. And you think that could have killed him. So it takes you out of the movie, but that's what it is. That's what movies are. You know, when you go and see a Bond film, you see Daniel Craig as James Bond. They tell you it's a, it's a trick. It's an illusion. It's an actor. Um, but we buy into that as we buy into animation when we see a lump of plasticine or a puppet or, or something. And I think if we take, take that device, take that um, awareness away, that's when it becomes dull. I think mm. you still need to marvel at the trick. Uh, how did you get into animation? So you've got all different, uh, so you've and other things as well. But how did you get into animation in the first place? Uh, okay, um, I, I did drama at university. Uh, I was a bit of a fish out of water because everybody <laughs> wanted to be actors and were good actors. Um, I was, I fell in love with Shakespeare at university. I adored him before, but, you know, here we were studying him. And I really enjoyed, why does he choose that word and not that word? And why is that word in the middle of the sentence, not at the end? I, I love the puzzle of Shakespeare. Um, and I sort of wanted to be an actor, but this voice is terrible. And, uh, I never really learned to breathe and I can't do accents and I can't sing and I can't dance. So, and I started working in theater for a few years as stage manager, which I love stage managing. Um, and this was in Manchester and I got a job in the theater in Scotland on the train up to Scotland in the TV times or something was an article about the company Cosgrove Hall and their series, Chawton the Wheelies. Now, I'd just been living in a place called Chawton, and I had no idea that they were making this, these animation there. And I wrote a rather conceited, arrogant letter, eight pages, to Mark Hall saying, I love Chawton the Wheelies, but I think I could get more performance out of them. <laughs> which is a terrible thing to write when I'd never touched a puppet. But, you know, I had been performing at university and I, I knew that you pauses and strong gestures and, you know, all that. Um, Mark said, well, okay, 
when you're next in Manchester, come and do an audition. <laughs> and there was a, a series in Rainbow. Uh, Cosgrove Hall did several things for Rainbow. There was a series called Lines and Shapes that were basically cutouts and danced around to music. But there was also a stop motion series called Grand Bricks of Swallow Street, which was sort of a Coronation Street um, character set up, it was a street, and Grandma Bricks used to walk down, it was two minutes every episode of Rainbow. Um, and they were shooting that, and he said, right, then puppet, walk her down the end of the street with her, with her dog. And I had about six hours, um, and they just do it. And they gave me a job. Um, it was quite smooth, the animation, they said. But I did something that I've never done again since. I walked her toe-heel, toe-heel, toe-heel. Nobody walks that, like that. You walk heel, toe, heel, toe. And I've never done it since. And, it, and I thought, oh, oh, God, why didn't I... Why didn't I feel that? Why didn't I observe that? Um, but they said the puppet wasn't wobbling, which was very good because um, we had no video feedback or anything. Um, but observation, <laughs> there's the thing. Anyway, they they gave me an audition, and I I, I started work on. Um, I did Grandma Bricks, and um, I quite liked Grandma Bricks. Um, the characters were interesting. We had the first black animated character in the series, I think. Um, and But she did a lot of walking, and um, she was quite absent-minded. And she often walked down the whole length of the street, but had forgot her shopping bag. So she had to walk back down again. That's good training. I tell you what, what working on a series with no video feedback, doing... 20 seconds a day or something that's quite you learn your, your skill then you learn not to faff around video feedback today gives you the chance to finesse and get it right but it it makes you dither <laughs> on wind in the willows on the tv series at least i seem to remember we had to shoot 23 seconds a day of decent stop motion sometimes with a dozen characters. That's, you have to know what you're doing. <laughs> I find, you know, I work with a lot of students and the idea of putting your hands on the puppet at nine o'clock in the morning and animating is, is unheard of. Um, but I like the discipline of a series. You have to shoot X amount of seconds a day. That's the whole series depends on that. And you can't, <clears throat> you don't have rehearsal, you have the luxury of reshoots unless something technical goes wrong. You have to get it right. And I think <clears throat> that is the adrenaline that I I enjoy in theatre. <clears throat> you have to get it right. Um, and there are times, of course, when you don't and you're stuck with that. But um, And I look at some of the films and go, oh, God. But anyway, it was right at the time. <laughs> I think what I have learned over the years 
talking of Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows, is I look at him now and he's so busy. He's so frantic because I was loving animation. And I think if I've learned something now, if you compare Toad to Tchaikovsky, yeah. Tchaikovsky what does one gesture that's very meaningful. Whereas Toad was probably doing lots of gestures that maybe didn't mean anything because I just loved animating. And I think I was frightened to hold him still. Stillness is part of stillness is part of animation, as mm. silence is part of music, and I think that takes quite a, a brave thing to learn to actually hold a puppet not moving. We've got a question from uh, Rianne Lohman. She's asking what your favourite part of creating animation is. The writing in the studio. <laughs> I don't like post production because it falls to pieces or, or it sort of drifts away from you a bit. Um, I, I think basically I like the hands-on. Hands-on when you're writing, hands-on when you're touching a puppet. That's the, um, yeah, just when it's you and a puppet and a camera. That doesn't get better than that. <laughs>